Do you have the empty read case blues? Well, luckily for you, Singin' Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high-quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit us at www.singindog.com to see all of our products and fill up that read case. Hey, oboists, have you checked out MKL Reads lately? MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reads where you can try reads from various makers and then select the one that is best for you. How cool is that? Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLE SPACE READ SPACE DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Michigan right now as we are currently recording. How is Michigan? It's good. My wife got a big time job at Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp. She's going to be full time here. Yay, Becky. Yay, Becky. So that's awesome. But if you are a musician in a relationship with another musician, you know that sometimes you have to do long distance. I know that you and Chris have done it before. Uh, three times. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot it was three times. That's a lot of times. <laughs> yep. Grad school and then grad school again and then a sabbatical replacement. So we've done our oh, fair share. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So Becky and I are doing it. So she's going to be in Michigan and I'm going to be in Mississippi. So we moved her up here over the break, and uh, I'm enjoying one last day of chilly weather, and then I am going back to Hattiesburg. So it's been a little bit of a trip. I've wondered if that's kind of where my workaholism stems from. I think I'd always have that part of my personality, but I always just kind of got lost in the work and just kind of dug into the things that were keeping me busy at home. And the nice thing is the first time Chris and I did long distance was before, not before the internet, I'm not that old, but um, everyone having laptops and FaceTime and Skype and all that type of stuff, it just wasn't Mm -hmm. quite as regular. The place I lived didn't even have Wi-Fi. You had to like unplug the phone and plug it into your laptop and stuff. But the last couple of times being able to Skype and FaceTime and that type of thing, it's not that you don't miss the person, but it just made it a lot easier than it could have been if it was like 1930 or something, you know? I think that's kind of where I'm at too. Like I'm planning all of these projects to keep me busy while I am in Hattiesburg doing my job by myself. So um, (laughs) I actually started a really big project. I bought a book called The Artist's Way, A Spiritual Path to Higher Creativity. So it's a 12-week program. Um, basically, it's, it's described as the course in discovering and recovering your creative self. And I was like, ooh, that sounds good. And so I started doing it. I'm in week one. And uh, I'm also, at the same time, um, reading a very short but intense book called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. It's kind of changed my perspective on a lot of things and it goes well actually with the artist's way. They kind of talk about similar related concepts. So it's been really great. Like sometimes a little bit too much truth. Like you read a sentence and you're like, ooh. <laughs> But it's been really cool. I like it. I've heard about it a ton, actually. I read a book, oh, I guess about two years ago that really changed my life called The Big Leap. And anytime I tell someone about it, they go, have you read The Artist's Way? I think you'd really like The Artist's Way. So um, I've heard a lot from just people in my life, other musicians who highly recommend it. And so actually when you texted me that you bought it, I got inspired to do a little girlfriend book club and I ordered a copy. And I think I'm going to wait till after Meg Quigley 
to start it because that's going to be a crazy time and you have to dedicate time every day from what you say. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm going to start it along with the start of the new school year. So I'm excited. Yeah, that sounds great. That yeah. sounds great. She talks about, the book is by Julia Cameron, and she talks about two things that you have to do consistently throughout the the course. And she has other exercises too, but the main two things are the morning pages and the artist date. And the morning pages is basically you wake up in the morning and you write three pages of whatever, and it's non-negotiable. So the point of the morning pages is to bring out and then silence your inner critic. And then the artist date is once a week, you take your inner artist who you have to nurture and protect as if it were your child on a date, just the two of you, you and your artist. So I was like, oh God, what am I going to do? But then I had a brilliant idea because I follow Jonathan Van Ness on Instagram and he's always like he's doing this whole project where he learns how to ice skate. So I was like, I'm going to take myself ice skating. (laughs) So I did. I took myself on an artist date to the local ice skating rink and it was really, really fun to do something physical by myself, like something I haven't done in years and years. It was cool. I liked it. So you getting into the artist way kind of inspired our dish for today. And we wanted to talk about books that have helped us musically and professionally. So do you have any others that come to mind, books that have helped you along your way? Yeah. When I was an undergrad, I read The Inner Game of Tennis and Zen in the Art of Archery. Those two, I read Zen and the Art of Archery first, and that really changed my perspective. I I really enjoyed reading that. Um, And then The Inner Game of Tennis is uh, the original book. Um, It was later adapted to The Inner Game of Music. So those two together were really helpful when I was an undergraduate because I remember just trying really hard and wanting it so badly. And it seemed like the more I tried, the worse my results were. So that was really good to read. Well, we did a call on our social media to ask people what they read. And actually, two of our listeners echo your selections. Daniel says, the best game that helped me was the inner game of music. It completely changed the way I approached performing and learning music. And Ellen said Zen and the art of archery totally related to oboe playing and performance. So some strong endorsements for your selection. Some some strong endorsements. (laughs) (laughs) We also had some really interesting books that I have not heard of before. Um, Heather Huckleberry wrote in Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon. Um, helps her listen to her inner voice and no one else's and it gives her courage and makes her happy. So I'm really interested in reading that one too. I have a huge stack. I'm trying to (laughs) figure out what ones are the best. Two of them I've talked about a million times on the podcast, so I don't need to go super in depth, but um, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks uh, talks about time management and prioritization. And I've Like I said, talked about that a ton. I don't need to go into that so much, but incredibly transformative in my life. Also, The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. I read kind of at the same time. And we also had several listeners talk about The Talent Code. Tim wrote in and said that was one that really resonated with him. Um, Mm -hmm. Don Green, Fight Your Fear and Win. But we had several people write in about just the Don Green Library. So Mm -hmm. I haven't read Performance Success, but Kaylee said Performance Success by Don Green has been a wonderful resource for me. My professor recommended it to me as I was looking for resources for research interest. I studied music therapy and just finished an internship working with adolescents in a residential psychiatric treatment facility. Many of the kids I worked with have experienced severe trauma in their lives and trauma impacts their sense of self-esteem and confidence. Along with using this book as a personal resource to help my own musical performance, I used it with the kids 
at my internship. We worked on body awareness, mindfulness, and finding our strengths in order to build confidence and lessen anxiety while performing in front of others musically and otherwise. I love the book and how it has functioned in my performance, education, and service to others. And I can't agree more. I Everything Katie said. What a beautiful synthesis. Yeah, thank you. What a beautiful synthesis of everything that we do. Mm-hmm. Such a beautiful way about service and helping people who need help. Yeah, and I like that she kind of makes a connection there that music can be traumatizing, which is kind of a negative <laughs> statement. And I don't mean it that way, except that music yeah, is a vulnerable act. Yeah, and making oneself incredibly vulnerable in a high stakes scenario that is something that is not to be underestimated mentally. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I like that Don Green meets you where you're at and he helps you build the skills to get you where you need to be while framing it in, hey, these things feel very individual, but they are universal. So if there are tons of people in this world who are successful, you can be one of them, which is essentially the thesis behind the talent code as well, that this idea of talent is a skill that can be developed. It's not just that you're like born and touched by the hand of God. And that's actually a great segue to another book that's on my list, but that a bunch of listeners wrote about Sound in Motion, A Performer's Guide to Greater Musical Expression by David McGill, which I cannot recommend highly enough. His introductory chapters are essentially about this concept we've been talking about, that talent Mm -hmm. is a skill that can be acquired, that doing something in the moment or because we feel it is actually an unprofessional way to approach music making. You need to be thoughtful. You need to plan how you're going to execute a phrase. And then he goes on to outline the Tabato method of phrasing and the number system and that type of thing. And I've heard people criticize this book for it being a little too cerebral. And it is sophisticated because it's sophisticated topics. But I benefited so much from this book. I know several musicians I talk to say, I read it annually. And it Mm -hmm. resonates a lot with, uh, it's not a bassoon book, I think is the biggest thing. to. Oh, no, it's not a bassoon book. No. Yeah. Yeah. So don't go, oh, David McGill wrote it. It's a bassoon book. No, it's a musician book. And it's a incredible resource. So a bunch of people wrote in about Sound in Motion, Noelle Drews and Christy Selkeen. Um, Christy Selkeen also um, wrote To Learn with Love. It's a Suzuki method book, but she uses those ideas and principles in her teaching, which seems really interesting. And Noelle also suggested Oboe Motions by Stephen Kaplan and Barbara Conable and The New Rules of Posture for Tendinitis Issues. And Ketarjenis de Bolnam also suggested Sound in Motion by David McGill. And she also says, this book changed my life. Before we get to the rest of our listener submissions, I had a couple suggestions that are not necessarily music books, but they're good um, business books. And they're not necessarily music entrepreneurship books, but we know that part of being in this field, especially in the digital age, is learning how to brand ourselves as musicians. And so two books that I really recommend are Alexis Jones, I Am That Girl. And here's the thing about... business and branding books, they all have corny titles that make you feel completely humiliated to read them in public. But it's essentially about how to figure out what you want to do, what's your passion, what's your purpose, and then capitalizing on the current age in order to be the best version of you through strategic marketing, branding, that type of thing. Um, And then we also have both read the Eliza Light book, Leave Your Mark which talks all about social media and how to make the most of social media in a way that's not like repetitive and irritating and whatnot. Basically, how to let your personality show through your social media presence. And she was completely inexperienced and wanted to break into the world of fashion. And through being strategic with the internet and how she represented the magazine on the internet, she was able to really rise the corporate ladder. So those are two books that I think are very applicable to musicians that are not necessarily music centered. So I wanted to make sure to shout those out as well. 
So what else did our listeners suggest for us? Kim Walker's book, Art of Wind Playing. Uh, this was submitted by Sean. And he says it covers everything about wind playing and then some can't recommend it enough. We also have Kelsey's submission of Let Your Mind Run by Dina Castor. Very helpful to think of myself as an athlete. Mm. Uh, yes, that is true, although... I don't want to run, so there's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Just think of yourself as an athlete. You don't have to think. Of, okay, I can think about it. <laughs> oh, I can run a whole marathon in my mind. <laughs> we also had the submission of Big Magic for Thoughts on Creativity by Noel again. And Layla Storch's Tabuto book, um, Marcel Tabuto, How Do You Expect to Play the Oboe If You Can't Peel a Mushroom? Sean says the art of possibility by Ben Zander and Rosamund Stone Zander. She is a psychologist and he's obviously an amazing musician. Alternating chapters are great analogies for stress in music and simply dealing and working with students and colleagues. I revisit this book once a year, change my teaching, playing and interaction with everyone. Moving into Instagram, we got some really interesting perspective from Dylan who suggested The Art of Wind Playing, Audition Process by Stuart Dunkel, Trevor Weiss' Flute Compendium, J.J. Quant's Treatise, um, and again, Layla Storch's book on Tabuto. And he also references his experience working with drag queens and burlesque dancers at an event tech and feeling inspired by their engagement with the audience, attention to detail, willingness to explore their art and community engagement. As performers, we are storytellers through our art. As educators, we guide pupils through their development and ideally teach critical problem-solving skills. And as hustlers, we need to be in integral parts of our creative community, performing digital print and media architects and designers. And I think that is such an interesting perspective. And it's so awesome when you can find inspiration in a seemingly unrelated field. Oh, definitely. And if that is intriguing to you and you're kind of not sure where to experience that, Netflix has the documentary Paris is Burning, which is about the early ball scene in New York City, uh, which kind of touches on everything that Dylan just talked about. So I recommend that very much. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Genda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Genda. Genda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Genda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, And it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender read knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student read knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your read making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender read knife, maintenance kit, read knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or read tool roll. Visit them now at gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just read knives. Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. She has built her business on providing high-quality handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at JennetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E.com. We're delighted to welcome to Double Reed Dish, Frank Rosenwine, Principal Oboe of the Cleveland Orchestra. Welcome to Double Reed Dish. 
Thank you so much. Delight to be here. So how did you start playing the oboe? I had a fortuitous um, beginning to that, which is that um, our family, I grew up in Evanston outside of Chicago, and our family had some family friends, the Morgans, and the Mr. Morgan happened to be an oboe player, and in fact was is one of the great oboe players, uh, Bob Morgan. So when I matriculated to the oboe from the clarinet, um, excellent about, choice, right? <laughs> at about at about ten, I want to say fifth grade, I um, I immediately started studying with with Bob, and um, that was that was wonderful. I mean, I I think. Um, Anybody out there who, you know, is 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 gonna start the oboe or um, or has a kid who wants to start the oboe, start them with someone who's great right away. That's the way to do it. When did you start learning how to make reeds? Because we've had guests who waited a long time before they've started, and had guests who started immediately when they started learning. Yeah, um, I learned basically in high school, so I spent a lot of years not doing anything with reeds. I think there are advantages to both. I mean, I can see where learning the learning the ropes in terms of all the stuff that you're going to need reed-wise is, is helpful early on. But I also think that um, if you can find like a steady supply of good reeds, whether that's bought or from your teacher or whatever, then that, that, that can be a really viable um, way to just feel like this is a musical instrument, not an arts and crafts project. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when did you get like serious about the oboe? Was that a natural byproduct of studying with this excellent player or did that take a while? I think that was a certain sense that um, I loved music. I loved how it made me feel. Uh, and I was, I was good at it. I, I knew that I wasn't so good at piano, although I liked piano, but. I knew that my skills there were far outdone by others. Um, whereas the oboe felt like, you know what, this is, this is going well and, and I'm doing well and, and, and I really like it. And so I would say about sophomore year of high school, I really said, this is, this is it. This is my path. Did your practice habits or level of commitment or dedication change after that moment? I think it did. I think it did. I remember having a like a vivid sense that um you know I was going to really I was going to pursue this and um to do that I really needed to get serious, you know. And serious meant hours on the oboe. I mean, I don't know if I actually was spending hours on the oboe, but I certainly enjoyed it enough to really try to go for it, or put in the work, you know. I was like the North Shore of Chicago is kind of um notorious for for lots of great instrumentalists coming out of there pianists and and violinists and and lots of woodwind players and stuff so i I was in this milieu of you know you work really hard at it and you can be great and you Mm -hmm. can go places so that was that that was part of the whole like atmosphere and so then you went to cim and you studied with john mack and so we want to hear all about that yeah, well, you know, because I I grew up in the land of Ray Still, um, and that was a that was a huge. I mean, I I still think Ray Still. I had a couple lessons with with Ray. I never sort of went that direction in terms of my um, my studies, my formal studies. But Bob Morgan was a student of both uh, Still and of Mac and of Lifshi. I mean, he had all these various um, influences, and so. So Chicago was a very sort of still-centric place, which meant, you know, if you know still and you know Mac and you sort of have these, have the, have the, have a notion of like what those two styles mean. I mean, it's a very different kind of thing. I mean, maybe today we don't even have such distinct styles. I mean, maybe a little bit, there's a certain like Cleveland thing that still happens and like a Philly thing. And those are, you can tell when somebody studied in Philadelphia or studied in Cleveland, you know, but, but I feel like even 25 years ago or so you had even more of a kind of regional and disparate kind of um, schools that were happening. Mm -hmm. So the still school was like this very fluid, very vibrant, uh, flexible thing. And the, and the Mac school was, 
was tone driven and dense and stable and and chocolatey and this kind of thing. Um, so uh, so I feel like I had a, a really nice sense of that in terms of 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 first you know in my in my early years of this kind of fluidity of this fluency of of, um, of flexibility and then coming to Mac which I started coming to Mac actually in high school. I took some lessons mm-hmm. with him. Um, I would come with my dad and we would take the train and blah, blah, blah. And, and that, that influence, the influence of, of this, uh, this, the richness, you know, um, the penetrating sort of tone, that was also a, a, a really big influence on me. So already in high school, I was having these, sort of, these strands of sound and of style were sort of um, interacting. And I think, you know, Mac, he kind of has had a reputation for um, for being not didactic exactly, but having really specific standards uh, for for playing, for tone, for musical issues. And he has sort of all these musical issues were sort of figured out, right? You go to John Mac, he knows how to play X, Y, and Z, you know? You can bring him the Mozart concerto and he sort of... He imparts the magic, you know, um, which, which, yeah, there, there was that. And that, that's really valuable, right? Like to have someone, especially, you know, when you're young and impressionable to, to feel like there's someone who says, you know, this is right, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. But I never felt that it ended with that. I think that would have been a little frustrating. I think if it had just been, this is how you play, this is how you don't play sort of white and black quality of it would have been wouldn't have been appealing you know but but i think he 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 was much more nuanced um than than a kind of uh caricature of him would would detail in that he was extremely interested in um in in flexibility and in um in color in in advancing someone's own vision and but then encouraging them to to have certain properties that he considered to be really essential. So I remember a lot of my um, studies with him were about bulking up, bulking up the tone. Can we get this? Tone? So everything's really nice, but, but, but let's just, can we just fill it in? And, and it, I don't think it ever really happened while I was in school, but you know what I realized uh, when I got out of school and I started getting into jobs, so it was like how much the job changes you how much you evolve to fit your your circumstances your hall your orchestra um all this and i think mac is a really great example of um of someone who developed you know i mean if you listen to him early on in his career he's just come to cleveland he's just replaced lifshi you know and and he's he's as influenced by lifshi as anybody as any of us are today you know so so i mean you listen to like Brahms two from from the middle of the sixties with Zell and and you hear this voice which is it's clearly Mac but it's so Lifshi influenced you know and then you course through the seventies and the eighties and the nineties and 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 this is not a um this is not a person who found a way and then stuck to it you know this is an evolving person with all of the qualities of finding this thing that he's interested in that he explores and that he goes for and so, so i think all that i feel like I, I i gained from all that i would love to dive into the idea of evolving in your job but before we get into that do you have any memorable moments from lessons with John Mack that you'd like to share with us? So one of the, one of the, I think important parts about studying with Mack was, and, and I find it even more, I found it maybe baffling then, but find it really important now, which is that he, uh, he sort of buttressed his, his teachings with stories with stories from his life, with sort of aphorisms, with um, with with ver- in various ways, but these were these were sort of repeated constantly. These were sort of this was like a refrain, you know. Certain things, um, uh, certain stories that you would hear, you know, every other week. 
every, every month. He, he would call you on the phone and he would recount the same story. And, and <laughs> right. And to me, it felt like, okay, you know, I, I got it, right? Like, he told this to me and this is like, I don't need this anymore. But, but, but in actual fact, I think that the, the sense of, the sense of reinforcement in for a student is is so so vital so important and and i th- i mean even to this day when i'm teaching i think you know i've given this person the the information you know la- last week i gave you that information and now this week uh i don't understand why the information is not um it has not like oh taken fruit you know <laughs> right yes. which is which is it's just totally ridiculous and i i feel like um yeah mac was was really aware of the, uh, I mean, he, whether he knew it consciously or not, but, but, but he was really aware of the, of the sense of, of this as being a journey, you know, you're on a journey and, and he's, and he's guiding you and, you know, and, and, on any journey and a person with, with a guide, you know, they, they have to constantly be, um, be reminding you constantly be reinforcing in different ways you know here's a story but on top of that story i'm going to tell you why this is important to me and on top of that you know in two weeks you're going to hear a slightly you know a a certain um modified version of the same thing so i think that 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 i think that that still is a is a good model for me in terms of i mean it doesn't really get to anything specific but i think though you know in 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 a particular lesson but those kind of moments where you learn something of of the man's life and of how his like brain is processing things and then also the feeling that like you're you're constantly being um yeah reinforced in 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 your in your growth so our listeners are always really eager to hear about the audition preparation process, especially of people who have been very successful in auditioning. Um, so I'd love to hear about if you can recall anything in particular you did in preparing for winning your position. But I would also wonder if it took on any sort of um, additional power or importance that you were auditioning for the job that your teacher had so famously previously had? Mm, well, these are interesting questions. I mean, I, I'm almost, I'm almost hesitant to, to say that I've been really successful in auditions. I mean, yes, ultimately I've done well, but I've certainly lost many more auditions than I've won, hmm. which is to say, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a process of, of personal growth. Each audition is yes, a step closer to like a job, but it's also um, a way to understand yourself and, and, and to self-evaluate and what's, what's working and what could be better. Um, and, the, and, and all the, all the attendant frustration and, and um, craziness that that, that that brings. I mean, ultimately I think that results in, in growth so so i think in terms of my own um my own success i think the best you know advice or the best like uh counsel that i that that i had for for myself was to 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 be as true to my vision as as i could to grow at a pace that was sort of aspirational in 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 one sense but also uh realistic in another sense and to to take each opportunity as as a way of getting closer to uh the essence of these of uh, of the music i mean it's so easy to think of these little excerpts as um as exercises you know as sort of these barren stale um etudes that we have to take out and prove to everybody that we're so good you know um <laughs> but the more you can right i mean the more you can contextualize them and and create within them and find ways of keeping them alive i think the more success uh will will happen and in terms of um the cleveland audition you know that was such a here's here's the thing with that is i think as young people we tend to think of in the same way that like you think of mac as having emerged as Mac, you know, and he was who he was when he's 70, when he was 22, right? I mm. mean, it, it, the same thing, 
the same thing happens for um for for an audition and and for for feeling like you're um you know that you're worthy of a certain position i mean the audition for for max seat was like such a so ridiculous to think that you could replace you know that i would be the one who would be the successor to to john max so i went into there i went into the audition feeling like you know i'm gonna you know <laughs> Whatever, right? Like I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna try my best. Here, you know, here it goes, and 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 I think in a way that's like that's the way to do it, right? I mean, to put too much pressure on yourself to feel like you have to live up to certain expectations. I mean, the the sort of notion of great men or great women as having um, sort of emerged from. Uh, the head of Zeus, perfect, you know, um, no warts, no nothing. I think it's 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 sort of a, a ridiculous concept, right? So I think going into something like a big audition, you know, quote unquote big audition, it's it's worth it to say to yourself, you know what? Like, uh, I'm human. I have faults, and um, these, and hopefully, these faults will be looked past, or maybe these faults are actually in some ways like adding to the kind of texture of of you know the the humanness of 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 the music that I'm producing you know so that then that makes an impression you know i mean your vulnerabilities are also part of what make you an interesting voice right is it difficult to maintain your vulnerability and not internalize rejection because i feel mm. like that's where a lot of people have a really hard time, you know, people who just take countless auditions and maybe they get pretty far, but they don't win. I would think that it's really hard to maintain your sense of self-worth. Um, and that's what's so difficult about our field. Mm, that's so, so true. And, and, and even, I think, I mean, even for me, you know, in terms of, uh, of, of play, you know, just, just not, not in, not in an audition necessarily, but, but in, you know, if I'm playing, uh, if I'm playing a solo somewhere, right? The the expectations that you know this this has to be great, and that um, uh, you know people are gonna think that well he's well he's slipping, or he or ah that's not as great as I thought it was gonna be, right? Or you know mm-hmm. these kinds of things feel feel um feel like they can be make things feel feel daunting, but. I think a you know the audition thing is not a um these people are not uh, um adjudicating your self worth you are worthwhile in in your search for for beauty and for success and for for great music making um and um and you know the the idea that um there's one person who comes out of this event and that person is the victor and that person has slaughtered the rest of the field. I mean, this is, this is how it can feel, but in actuality, you know, when you're on the other side of the, of the screen, right. Which I've been doing for, for a lot of years. It's like, you know, this person's great and this person's great and that person's really good. And this person, and you know, for this job and on this day and for this particular thing, like we're going to take the qualities of this person over the great qualities of that person. And, and the more you can realize that it's, that there isn't, it's not a zero sum game. It's not a, it's not that one person, I mean, it isn't that one person wins and everybody mm-hmm. else loses, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not as if there is that one person who is great and then everyone else is just, ugh, just an also ran, you know? So I'm curious about how you would. Um, characterize your growth and experienced your own growth in your time with the Cleveland Orchestra? Because you started there in 2005, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So how has that been for you to grow into the job? Yeah. I mean, that's been, I think, a huge uh, sort of a product of, of my life is getting, getting, putting roots down in that, in that seat. And I think a lot of it has to do, honestly, with, um, with, with teaching. Because teaching, I mean, as you guys know, I mean, there's so much self-reflection that goes into teaching, Mm -hmm. so much um, searching, soul searching, whatever. I mean, to be able to uh, articulate and to get across principles which animate you in your own playing, 
it's a weighty, it's a, it's a heavy task and, and, and it only benefits you in your, in your own playing to sort of have a, a, a real keyed in notion of what, um, what music means to you and what, what is special in oboe playing or bassoon playing or, or whatever. So I think that has really been a great help in sort of developing my sense of what, um, what I want to do, um, how I want to play. Uh, but then the orchestra, obviously, like your surroundings, who you're surrounded by, the culture of the orchestra, all that is another thing that is so, so, so vital. So in Cleveland, there's such a tradition of collaboration, you know, and, and listening across the, across the orchestra. And, and, you know, I'm constantly, constantly aware or trying to be aware right constantly challenging myself to um to consider what role i'm supposed to be playing at any given moment right we think of principal oboe sometimes as like a you know it's a real solo voice okay but uh you know the 95 percent of the time where you're not a solo voice you're you're something else right you're Mm -hmm. you're accompanying the 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 second flute you're underneath the third horn you're providing a kind of background to something else that's in the foreground. So, I mean, th- that sense of, of, of creating, you know, creating and of figuring out your role and what, what you can do within the context of a given piece. Um, I mean, that's been super fascinating and, and feels like that's, that never ending, right? Like that kind of investigation into like, what do you, what can you do to make this, to make this passage or this group or the, you know, the ensemble or whatever more to what uh, the composer intended or more to what your, your, your instincts tell you is, is the, is the right character. And then, and then there's, you know, the players around me. So like, you know, so playing next to Josh Smith, principal flute is like, I mean, that's, sort of my main partner i mean i have a i have a i have a wife but he's my second wife you know (laughs) (laughs) i mean that that connection that that sense of i mean i i almost feel like we 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 can sort of um finish each other's sentences now in terms of uh musically right so um so you learn so much from opening your ears and 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 listening to to what's around you. So for example, I mean, with Josh, it's like he's so nimble, he's so um, I don't know, frothy and bubbly about his sound, right? So you know, how can I on this you know this wooden stick with a reed stuck in? How can I like? bring the champagne to, to, to toast his, his bubbliness, you know? So that, that kind of thing. I mean, that's, that, that kind of stuff. I think that, that's always fascinating too, uh, for, for me in terms of something, you know, something to work towards. How do you feel like that has informed yourself as a concerto soloist who stands in front of the orchestra a lot? Well, I mean, interestingly enough, I just finished up a run of, um, Strauss concertos with an orchestra in Cleveland. You know, I played the concerto before, but then here's you know part of part of growth. I mean, it's also part of I don't know, just my I'm just I'm stupid. But um, (laughs) but the but the the the, what I really realized about that piece is is and it really hit me this time that I played it was how interactive it really is that. that it's you're so weaving it's not about you standing in front of the orchestra and proclaiming and then the orchestra answers you and then you go on i mean that concerto is so much more about the 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 interweaving lines and and the 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 combinations of instruments and and the colors you can create with instruments especially the oboe and the winds um so i mean the the i think the awareness of that, the awareness of how a concerto and maybe also by extension, you know, a solo in, in a given piece is so connected to what's happening around it, what's happening um, underneath it, um, what's happening before it, what's happening after it. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, all those things, I think, 
are are still for me developing and deepening. How did you physically prepare to give five performances of the Strauss Concerto? Well, I think because the... I pro- I did it one time and I was exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> well. I mean, in a way, doing it once is is maybe more exhausting because there's certain there's a certain thing about the body where you adapt, you know. I mean, and you guys probably have experienced it too. But I mean, like for example, my first week um, as principal oboe in Cleveland, you know, it's like this is the most exhausting. I mean, you're you're every pore and every neuron in your brain is like firing. Um, at its max capacity, and and you know you have a two hour two hour rehearsal, and you're just like you're done. You know you have to take a three hour nap. Um, <laughs> I mean, right? So, but but the body's amazing in in how it adapts, and 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 you take on these stressful things, and you and and your body, like you know, it it, it has it is capable of more than you thought. So this kind of thing. So I think that's that's part of it. And then the other thing with something like that is, um, it's just efficiency. Efficiency. If you, if you can get a read that doesn't have to be like the most beautifully toned read, although you want like, you want a, a delicious tone, but, um, but if you're having to work in any way to control the thing, whether for pitch or for, um, or for tone, right? Control the tone, get it to be. Then you're then 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 you're sunk. You know, you're just not gonna have a good time. So, um, so I don't. I mean, a lot of people do talk about um, preparing the body and um, and I mean, certainly, you know, doing exercise and stuff like that is not gonna hurt you. But I think the more you can be efficient with how you're doing things, and for oboe players, obviously, a lot of that has to do with the read. The, the the more the, the the it it's it's possible to 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 just play and not feel like you're gonna die in that piece. He's <laughs> like, sure, but I mean, obviously, sure. obviously, just just find a great read, right? Like, just find a great read. Like, okay. So one question that we ask a lot is, what is your favorite piece to play? And we're told time and time again that. That's a very unfair question. So I'm going to put a little bit different spin on it. And I'm going to ask you, okay, hypothetically, the Cleveland Orchestra administration comes to you and says, Frank, we want you to program one concert next season. What would you put on the program? Jackie. That's pretty good, right? <laughs> it's good. good. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Maybe you can just forward that question to the um, to the administration. And, <laughs> I and will do that. They can. Uh, well, actually, I think um, honestly, though the the answer to that and to the to the to the actual initial question of what's the favorite thing that I like to play might be the same. That is to say, if I could do it, I would just program St. Matthew's Passion. Oh yeah, that's what I was put on. That's that's. That's it. We did it once here, um, and it was just splendid and so wonderful. And I mean, I don't, I don't know that I could ever, ever, ever get get tired of that one. So I'd like to take a little bit of a left turn and talk about teaching because you are um, a very passionate and enthusiastic teacher, and I would love to know. Um, some advice that you usually give your students um, or insights that you find yourself coming to time and time again uh, with your students at CIM? I think one of the most important things for, for students is to engender in them a sense of what they're really going for. Um, to not have it be necessarily about, oh, Okay, you know, in this piece, in this particular piece, um, do this and that here, and then later on, do this and that. Um, but that there's really a kind of a hierarchy, maybe you could put it in terms of like of importance and a kind of filtering way of determining like what choices you have within that. So, like for example, I always think that the most 
the broadest and maybe the most um, um, shaping influence in a piece is its character, right? Its mood. Like, what is its overall character? Whether it's changing all the time or, you know, that's that's a character in, in and of itself, right? But um, But finding, but really figuring out what you believe, and it can change, obviously, it can change you know, next week or, or it can change in a year or whatever, but, but that, that the, that, that you're thinking about character and that through character you can then investigate. So if this is my character, then what does it mean for color? What does it mean for like an overall tone color? What does oh, it mean for, that. right? Right. Yeah. Like what does it mean for, for, for variety within the, the the color and then and then from there you can then start thinking about phrasing you know like so what does about what about this character necessitates certain kinds of phrasing so just a, you know it sort of going going on and on and on from there and, and so like i think you know a certain framing of these pieces is is um is is vital um both in terms of like pedagogically, but also in terms of, you know, that's what I do when I look at a piece of music, right? When I'm, when I'm in the orchestra, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to extract all the, all the, all the juice from it. Like, how can I interpret this? So that's the sort of, I guess, like where I start in terms of, terms of pedagogy. So how do you assess a good candidate um, to work with. So when you're hearing admission auditions, how do you discern who you think would be a good fit to accept into your studio? I like engagement. Like I like engagement with the music. Sometimes you can even tell, I'm sure you guys experience this, but sometimes like I just look at people's eyes, mm-hmm. which, okay, that's maybe it's, um, maybe it's more visual than, than oral, but, um, but you can often tell a there's a certain like life in the eyes that um that attunes me to their to the to the way that someone is um like engaging with the music as opposed to like regurgitating the music um so i like to but that kind of thing um the the kind of engagement on a kind of um what you call it spontaneous level right like what can you do in the moment to make it sound like it's fresh but then also um, engagement in terms of like how have you how deeply have you thought about this about this stuff like what does this mean to you and 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 how are you getting it across? I'm just gonna laugh when you have a student audition for you at CIM this spring and they're like looking like Louis Armstrong because they like heard this and they're just bug eyes, <laughs> just everyone's bugged bugged out. Can't fake it. You can't fake it. You gotta have the inner fire. <laughs> right, turquoise <laughs> eyeshadow. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to know, um, besides, you already mentioned St. Matthew's passion with the Cleveland Orchestra. Do you have another favorite memory of a past performance you can share with us? Well, we've done um, Das Lied twice. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get better. It just doesn't get better. So we've done that twice since I've been here. Both times have just been absolutely amazing. The first time... We did it. We had um, we had a snowstorm. It was one of the only times that uh, we canceled a, a a concert in Cleveland. So I think I only got to do it maybe like once in concert. So that was first, and then ten years later we got to do it again. So that stands out really as such a such a highlight. But actually, speaking of St. Matthew's Passion, when we did that, there was a crazy situation where. Uh, right before one of the performances, you know, two hours before the before the Friday Friday concert, the bass um, Pontius Pilate uh, got sick. Right, which was lucky for Jesus, but uh, or would <laughs> would have been, but we still had to go through it. And, and I think they tried. They scrambled and they tried to figure out to, how to get, you know, to get someone to come in, or the, blah, 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 but they couldn't come up. They couldn't find anybody to replace him. So Jesus 
sang both roles. No. Yeah, it was like the scene in uh, in in Taxi Driver where <laughs> where Robert De Niro is like talking to me. You talking to me? I don't see anybody. You right? It's like he was he was he was interrogating himself. <laughs> So that that stands out. That stands out. I wash my hands of myself. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Do you have any embarrassing moments throughout the course of your career you might be willing to share? Well, one that really stands out is um, the week of my um, tenure decision. Uh, we were doing... Beethoven 9 and um for some reason I was still like getting used to the schedule we 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 always have um it's changed a little bit but at that time we always had eight o'clock concerts so I was just used to eight o'clock being the evening time that I would come if I needed to come to the hall in the evening it would be at eight o'clock but uh but rehearsals like evening rehearsals like if we're playing with the choir uh the chorus those are at seven thirty. So, um, so somehow in my brain, I had mixed it up. I was thinking eight o'clock, I'm about seven twenty. I'm up in my studio, you know, working on a read or something. I'm, no, I was just about to leave. Right. Mm, I live, I lived at the time, 10 minutes away from the hall, something like that. So, all right. So, mm, um, I, 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 it's time to, time to wrap things up. And then, and then I realized that uh, and I had a panic, right? Like, I, oh my God, I think this is actually late. It, it's 7.30. And it was. And I like ran out of the house as fast as I could. I jumped in the car. I drove as fast as I could. Dro- I threw my car in front of the hall. I just left it. Like, you know, <laughs> like whatever. Like, this, no parking, whatever. Like, tow me. I don't care. Um, ran in. And like as I'm running, I'm uh, I'm shedding my bag and like opening my case and like putting my oboe together. And uh, I run out on stage, and Betty, the second oboe, the former second oboe, Betty Kimmy, she had just given the A. And I oh walk out on stage, and it was an open rehearsal, and the hall was completely filled. Oh my god! There's a huge chorus, right? The whole chorus, the whole orchestra's on stage. Franz is standing at the podium and the whole hall is filled and it felt, and I walk on and sit and it felt like the lights, you know, it felt like just every face and all the lights were like, just pointed right at me as I made my perp walk to the, <laughs> to the oboe seat. Oh, that felt terrible. Did anyone say anything? I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I mean, it was like a totally fine. I mean, as you know, like those things feel so unbelievably horrendous to you, but everyone else is kind of like giggling because they they know how bad you feel. And we have this tradition in Cleveland where if you're late or you do something wrong, like you bring your phone on stage and it rings or something, then you have to bring donuts for the orchestra the next time you come. So everybody knew that they were going to get donuts, so it was kind of like, <laughs> yay! <laughs> you know, every time that happens, like people then, as you're walking to your seat, people are like, oh, I like glazed. <laughs> I like jelly. Right, like... Um, yeah. Give me sprinkles, please. Yeah, yeah. And I think actually, I like I I felt so bad. I got like I brought some huge cakes in nice. that time. You know, I just like I just splurged. You know, like I was gonna just I was just gonna make up for that <laughs> in in sugar. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. Are there any hidden gems? in the repertoire that we may not know about that you have been playing that you think our listeners would love to discover? Um, yeah, I think I, I think, I think I do have um, some ideas. Although I don't know how, how hidden, how hidden they are, but, but I think, let's see. Um, I'm a big fan. Like if you're into solo, um, solo rep, for oboe, and this is not hidden, but I just want to give give my two cents that I think it's a really great piece. 
Dirk Michael Kirsch, the, the Ganymede. Yeah, I've heard it one time. That's a really, really lovely piece. It's a great piece. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a particularly favorite piece of mine. And let's see, you know, in terms of chamber music, um, there's actually, you know, we know about, um, we know about the Bax and the Bliss and the Britain, right? The three, mm-hmm. the, the three Bs. But, um, but actually, there's a lot of really good repertoire for, I mean, really good, like, I mean, not, not in comparison to, you know, the Beethoven string quartets, but um, there's a lot of good repertoire that, that's relatively unknown. Like there's um, a Mio piece, Jacob's Dreams. Oh. Um, that's a really interesting piece, worthwhile, worthwhile. Um, the Harbison Snow Country is, is another one. It's a little bit bigger uh, ensemble, but that's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece. Um, I don't know if too many people know, but Baccarini wrote like, I want to say a dozen quintets, oboe quintets, oboe and strings, oboe, two violins, viola, cello. I think we could do better in terms of broadening ourselves with, with, with repertoire for, for oboe and strings. Like that, that's such a, like a powerful and beautiful, um, combination, I think, you know, so I would look into, you know, just having, having more of that be part of our recital repertoire that sounds awesome what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours i would say that you know it's it's good to start off with the right uh situation i know that's not the not the easiest but we all know that um you know so much of our teaching is um is kind of undoing undoing the bad stuff right Mm -hmm. before we can even move on to 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 doing the the good stuff, um, so so the more we you one can start with a with a real solid foundation, the better off the better off obviously. But I think I think more sort of more more pertinently, maybe this is a little um, in the clouds or something. But I think the idea of, of of finding your vision of 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 having really having a vision of not being too um, not being buffeted too much by what one is instructed to do. You want to be really appreciative and, and extremely um, open to what your teacher says, right? To what any teacher says. I mean, we can learn so much from everywhere, right? We can learn, we can learn things from, from, from a TED Talk that, that affects uh, how we play or, or, or a violin teacher, right? Or you go to a piano master class and that makes a big impression on you. But, but, um, but I think if um, if you can take uh, your this is going to sound a little weird, but if you could take your teacher's positions with with a slight um, sense of skepticism, I think that's healthy. That is to say, uh, you are the owner of your own musical journey, and you should feel empowered yourself um in, internally to um come up with based on recordings that you've heard or 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 or, or visions that you've had or whatever um that that you that you have a, a certain notion of, of of how you want to sound or what you want to do with music um and that those people who are your teachers and your mentors and stuff are, are guiding you on the journey but that um but that, uh, but your sort of your path is uh, is for you. That's beautiful advice. <laughs> As our closing question, I'd love to ask about the things that you have coming up that you're excited about. I'm excited right at this moment, post Strauss concertos, to um, just sit around and uh, <laughs> play with my kids. <laughs> But but obviously you know the 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 spring actually upcoming is um, is going to be really exciting. We're going to China. The orchestra is, and that'll be my first time to China. So that's that's really exciting, and and I'm always excited to oh, just to just to, to play to play more to play more rep play new pieces. In January, we're starting a run of Ariadne, um, Strauss's opera. Great. 
which oh, I'm 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 so excited about because opera is just something that I really really love and, and passionate about, and 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 Franz is too. You know, the Cleveland Orchestra is doing a lot of. We've we've always done a lot of operas with him, and and he he sort of comes alive uh, when it comes to opera, and I feel like I feel like I do too. I just I love. I love the show. I love the singing. I love, especially Strauss, like he's writing such amazing things for, for, for Oboe and the Winds. So really excited about that. Well, Frank, thank you so much for talking with us today. We had a wonderful time. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This was, this was a delight. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can listen to us on anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you're on iTunes, don't forget to rate and leave us a review. Check out our newly updated website. We have a live appearances section where you can see where you can come hang out with us on the road this year. Jackie, it's time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads. <laughs>